Section One of The Shadows. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information, or to find out how you can volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recorded by Catherine Eastman, August 2007. The Shadows by George MacDonald. Section One. Old Ralph Rinkelmann made his living by comic sketches, and all but lost it again by tragic poems. So he was just the man to be chosen king of the fairies, for in fairyland the sovereignty is elective. It is no doubt very strange that fairies should desire to have a mortal king, but the fact is that with all their knowledge and power, they cannot get rid of the feeling that some men are greater than they are, though they can neither fly nor play tricks. So, at such times as there happens to be twice the usual number of sensible electors, such a man as Ralph Rinkelmann gets to be chosen. They did not mean to insist on his residence, for they needed his presence only on special occasions but they must get hold of him somehow, first of all, in order to make him king. Once he was crowned they could get him as often as they pleased, but before this ceremony there was a difficulty, for it is only between life and death that the fairies have power over grown-up mortals and can carry them off to their country, so they had to watch for an opportunity. Nor had they to wait long for old Ralph was taken dreadfully ill, and while hovering between life and death, they carried him off and crowned him king of fairyland. But after he was crowned, it was no wonder, considering the state of his health, that he should not be able to sit quite upright on the throne of fairyland, or that, in consequence, all the gnomes and goblins and ugly, cruel things that live in the holes and corners of the kingdom should take advantage of his condition and run quite wild, playing him, king as he was, all sorts of tricks, crowding about his throne, climbing up the steps, and actually scrambling and quarreling like mice about his ears and eyes so that he could see and think of nothing else but I am not going to tell anything more about this part of his adventures just at present. By strong and sustained efforts he succeeded, after much trouble and suffering, in reducing his rebellious subjects to order. They all vanished to their respective holes and corners, and King Ralph, coming to himself, found himself in his bed, half propped up with pillows. But the room was full of dark creatures, which gambolled about in the firelight in such a strange, huge, though noiseless fashion, that he thought at first that some of his rebellious goblins had not been subdued with the rest, but had followed him beyond the bounds of fairyland into his own private house in London. How else could these mad, grotesque, hippopotamus calves make their ugly appearance in Ralph Rinkelmann's bedroom? But he soon found out that although they were like the underground goblins, they were very different as well, and would require quite different treatment. He felt convinced that they were his subjects too, but that he must have overlooked them somehow at his late coronation, if indeed they had been present 
for he could not recollect that he had seen anything just like them before. He resolved, therefore, to pay particular attention to their habits, ways, and characters, else he saw plainly that they would soon be too much for him, as indeed this intrusion into his chamber, where Mrs. Wrinkleman, who must be queen if he was king, sat taking some tea by the fireside, evidently foreshadowed. But she, perceiving that he was looking about him with a more composed expression than his face had worn for many days, started up, and came quickly and quietly to his side, and her face was bright with gladness. Whereupon the fire burned up more cheerily, and the figures became more composed and respectful in their behavior, retreating towards the wall like well-trained attendants. Then the king of fairyland had some tea and dry toast, and, leaning back on his pillows, nearly fell asleep, but not quite, for he still watched the intruders. Presently the queen left the room to give some of the young princes and princesses their tea, and the fire burned lower, and, behold, the figures grew as black and as mad in their gambols as ever. Their favorite games seemed to be hide-and-seek, touch-and-go, grin-and-vanish, and many other such, and all in the king's bedchamber, too, so that it was quite alarming. It was almost as bad as if the house had been haunted by certain creatures which shall be nameless in a fairy story, because with them fairyland will not willingly have much to do. "'But it is a mercy that they have their slippers on,' said the king to himself, for his head ached. As he lay back, with his eyes half shut and half open, too tired to pay longer attention to their games, but, on the whole, considerably more amused than offended with the liberties they took, for they seemed good-natured creatures, and more frolicsome than positively ill-mannered, he became suddenly aware that two of them had stepped forward from the walls, upon which, after the manner of great spiders, most of them preferred sprawling, and now stood in the middle of the floor at the foot of his majesty's bed, becking and bowing and ducking in the most grotesquely obsequious manner, while every now and then they turned solemnly round upon one heel, evidently considering that motion the highest token of homage they could show. "'What do you want?' said the king. "'That it may please your majesty to be better acquainted with us,' answered they. "'We are your majesty's subjects.' "'I know you are. I shall be most happy.' "'answered the king. "'We are not what your majesty takes us for, though. "'We are not so foolish as your majesty thinks us.' "'It is impossible to take you for anything that I know of,' "'rejoined the king, who wished to make them talk, "'and said whatever came uppermost, "'for soldiers, sailors, or anything. "'You will not stand still long enough.' "'I suppose you really belong to the fire brigade. "'At least you keep putting its light out.' "'Don't jest, please, your majesty.' "'And as they said the words, "'for they both spoke at once throughout the interview, "'they performed a grave somerset towards the king. "'Not jest,' 
retorted he, and with you, why, you do nothing but jest. What are you? The shadow, sire. And when we do jest, sire, we always jest in earnest. But perhaps your majesty does not see us distinctly. I see you perfectly well, returned the king. Permit me, however, rejoined one of the shadows, and as he spoke he approached the king, and, lifting a dark forefinger, he drew it lightly but carefully across the ridge of his forehead, from temple to temple. The king felt the soft gliding touch go, like water, into every hollow, and over the top of every height of that mountain chain of thought. He had involuntarily closed his eyes during the operation, and when he unclosed them again, as soon as the finger was withdrawn, he found that they were opened in more senses than one. The room appeared to have extended itself on all sides, till he could not exactly see where the walls were, and all about it stood the shadows, motionless. They were tall and solemn, rather awful indeed in their appearance, notwithstanding many remarkable traits of grotesqueness, for they looked just like the pictures of Puritans drawn by cavaliers, with long arms and very long thin legs, from which hung large loose feet, while in their countenances length of chin and nose predominated. The solemnity of their mien, however, overcame all the oddity of their form, so that they were very eerie indeed to look at, dressed as they all were in funeral black. But a single glance was all that the king was allowed to have, for the former operator waved his dusky palm across his vision, and once more the king saw only the fire-lighted walls and dark shapes flickering about upon them. The two who had spoken for the rest seemed likewise to have vanished. But at last the king discovered them, standing one on each side of the fireplace. They kept close to the chimney-wall, and talked to each other across the length of the chimney-piece, thus avoiding the direct rays of the fire, which, though light is necessary to their appearing to human eyes, do not agree with them at all, much less give birth to them, as the king was soon to learn. After a few minutes they again approached the bed, and spoke thus, "'It is now getting dark, please your majesty. We mean out of doors in the snow.' Your majesty may see from where he is lying the cold light of its great winding-sheet, a famous carpet for the shadows to dance upon, your majesty. All our brothers and sisters will be at church now, before going to their night's work. Do they always go to church before they go to work? They always go to church first. Where is the church? In Iceland. Would your majesty like to see it? How can I go and see it, when, as you know very well, I am ill in bed? Besides, I should be sure to take cold in a frosty night like this, even if I put on the blankets and took the feather bed for a muff. 
a sort of quivering passed over their faces which seemed to be their mode of laughing the whole shape of the face shook and fluctuated as if it had been some dark fluid till by slow degrees of gathering calm it settled into its former rest then one of them drew aside the curtains of the bed and the window curtains not having yet been drawn the king beheld the white glimmering night outside struggling with the heaps of darkness that tried to quench it and the heavens full of stars flashing and sparkling like live jewels the other shadow went towards the fire and vanished in it scores of shadows immediately began an insane dance all about the room disappearing one after the other through the uncovered window and gliding darkly away over the face of the white snow for the window looked at once on a field of snow in a few moments the room was quite cleared of them but instead of being relieved by their absence the king felt immediately as if he were in a dead house and could hardly breathe for the sense of emptiness and desolation that fell upon him but as he lay looking out on the snow which stretched blank and wide before him he spied in the distance a long dark line which drew nearer and nearer and showed itself at last to be all the shadows walking in a double row and carrying in the midst of them something like a beer they vanished under the window but soon reappeared having somehow climbed up the wall of the house for they entered in perfect order by the window as if melting through the transparency of the glass they still carried the beer or litter it was covered with richest furs and skins of gorgeous wild beasts whose eyes were replaced by sapphires and emeralds that glittered and gleamed in the fire and snow-light the outermost skins sparkled with frost but the inside ones were soft and warm and dry as the down under a swan's wing the shadows approached the bed and set the litter upon it then a number of them brought a huge fur robe and wrapping it round the king laid him on the litter in the midst of the furs nothing could be more gentle and respectful than the way in which they moved him and he never thought of refusing to go then they put something on his head and lifting the litter carried him once round the room to fall into order as he passed the mirror he saw that he was covered with royal ermine and that his head wore a wonderful crown of gold set with none but red stones rubies and carbuncles and garnets and others whose names he could not tell glowed gloriously around his head like the salamandrine essence of all the christmas fires over the world a sceptre lay beside him a rod of ebony surmounted by a cone-shaped diamond which cut in a hundred facets flashed all the hues of the rainbow and threw coloured gleams on every side that looked like shadows too but more ethereal than those that bore him then the shadows rose gently to the window passed through it and sinking slowly upon the field of outstretched snow commenced an orderly gliding rather than march along the frozen surface they took it by turns to bear the king as they sped with the swiftness of thought in a straight line towards the north 
the pole-star rose above their heads with visible rapidity, for, indeed, they moved quite as fast as sad thoughts, though not with all the speed of happy desires. England and Scotland slid past the litter of the King of the Shadows. Over rivers and lakes they skimmed and glided. They climbed the high mountains and crossed the valleys with a fearless bound, till they came to John O'Groat's house and the northern sea. The sea was not frozen, for all the stars shone as clear out of the deeps below as they shone out of the deeps above, and as the bearers slid along the blue-gray surface, with never a furrow in their track, so pure was the water beneath, that the king saw neither surface, bottom, nor substance to it, and seemed to be gliding only through the blue sphere of heaven, with the stars above him and the stars below him, and between the stars and him nothing but an emptiness, where, for the first time in his life, his soul felt that it had room enough. At length they reached the rocky shores of Iceland. There they landed, still pursuing their journey. All this time the king felt no cold, for the red stones in his crown kept him warm, and the emerald and sapphire eyes of the wild beasts kept the frosts from settling upon his litter. Oftentimes upon their way they had to pass through forests, caverns, and rock-shadowed paths, where it was so dark that at first the king feared he should lose his shadows altogether. But as soon as they entered such places, the diamond in his scepter began to shine and glow and flash, sending out streams of light of all the colors that the painter's soul could dream of, in which light the shadows grew livelier and stronger than ever, speeding through the dark ways with an all but blinding swiftness. In the light of the diamond, too, some of their forms became more simple and human, while others seemed only to break out into a yet more untamable absurdity. Once, as they passed through a cave, the king actually saw some of their eyes, strange shadow eyes. He had never seen any of their eyes before. But at the same moment, when he saw their eyes, he knew their faces, too, for they turned them full upon him for an instant, and the other shadows, catching sight of these, shrank and shivered and nearly vanished. Lovely faces they were, but the king was very thoughtful after he saw them, and continued rather troubled all the rest of the journey. He could not account for those faces being there, and the faces of shadows, too, with living eyes. But he soon found that amongst the shadows a man must learn never to be surprised at anything, for if he does not he will soon grow quite stupid in consequence of the endless recurrence of surprises. At last they climbed up the bed of a little stream, and then, passing through a narrow rocky defile, came out suddenly upon the side of a mountain overlooking a blue frozen lake in the very heart of mighty hills. Overhead the aurora borealis was shivering and flashing like a battle of ten thousand spears. Underneath its beams passed faintly over the blue ice and the sides of the snow-clad mountains, 
whose tops shot up like huge icicles all about, with here and there a star sparkling on the very tip of one. But as the northern lights in the sky above so wavered and quivered and shot hither and thither, the shadows on the surface of the lake below, now gathering in groups and now shivering asunder, now covering the whole surface of the lake, and anon condensed into one dark knot in the centre. Every here and there on the white mountains might be seen two or three shooting away towards the tops to vanish beyond them, so that their number was gradually, though not visibly, diminishing. "'Please, your majesty,' said the shadows, "'this is our church, the church of the shadows.' And so saying, the king's bodyguard set down the litter upon a rock, and plunged into the multitudes below. They soon returned, however, and bore the king down into the middle of the lake. All the shadows came crowding round him, respectfully but fearlessly, and sure never such a grotesque assembly revealed itself before to mortal eyes. The king had seen all kinds of gnomes, goblins, and kobolds at his coronation, but they were quite rectilinear figures compared with the insane lawlessness of form in which the shadows rejoiced, and the wildest gambols of the former were orderly dances of ceremony beside the apparently aimless and willful contortions of figure and metamorphoses of shape in which the latter indulged. They retained, however, all the time, to the surprise of the king, an identity, each of his own type, inexplicably perceptible through every change. Indeed, this preservation of the primary idea of each form was more wonderful than the bewildering and ridiculous alterations to which the form itself was every moment subjected. "'What are you?' said the king, leaning on his elbow and looking around him. "'The shadows, your majesty,' answered several voices at once. "'What shadows?' "'The human shadows, the shadows of men and women and their children.' "'Are you not the shadows of chairs and tables and pokers and tongs just as well?' At this question, a strange jarring commotion went through the assembly with a shock. Several of the figures shot up as high as the aurora, but instantly settled down again to human size, as if overmastering their feelings, out of respect to him who had roused them. One who had bounded to the highest visible icy peak, and as suddenly returned, now elbowed his way through the rest, and made himself spokesman for them during the remaining part of the dialogue. "'Excuse our agitation, your majesty,' said he. "'I see your majesty has not yet thought proper to make himself acquainted with our nature and habits.' "'I wish to do so now,' replied the king. "'We are the shadows.' repeated the shadow solemnly. "'Well,' said the king, "'we do not often appear to men.' "'Ha!' said the king. 
we do not belong to the sunshine at all we go through it unseen and only by a passing chill do men recognize an unknown presence ha said the king again it is only in the twilight of the fire or when one man or woman is alone with a single candle or when any number of people are all feeling the same thing at once making them one that we show ourselves and the truth of things can that be true that loves the night said the king the darkness is the nurse of light answered the shadow can that be true which mocks at forms said the king truth rides abroad in shapeless storms answered the shadow ah ah thought ralph wrinkleman it rhymes the shadow caps my questions with his answers very strange and he grew thoughtful again the shadow was the first to resume please your majesty may we present our petition by all means replied the king i am not well enough to receive it in proper state never mind your majesty we do not care for much ceremony and indeed none of us are quite well at present the subject of our petition weighs upon us go on said the king sire began the shadow our very existence is in danger the various sorts of artificial light both in houses and in men women and children threaten to end our being the use and disposition of gaslights especially high in the centres blind the eyes by which alone we can be perceived we are all but banished from towns we are driven into villages and lonely houses chiefly old farmhouses out of which even our friends the fairies are fast disappearing we therefore petition our king by the power of his art to restore us to our rights in the house itself and in the hearts of its inhabitants but said the king you frighten the children very seldom your majesty and then only for their good we seldom seek to frighten anybody we mostly want to make people silent and thoughtful to awe them a little your majesty you are much more likely to make them laugh said the king are we said the shadow and approaching the king one step he stood quite still for a moment the diamond of the king's sceptre shot out a vivid flame of violet light and the king stared at the shadow in silence and his lip quivered he never told what he saw then but he would say just fancy what it might be if some flitting thoughts were to persist in staying to be looked at 
"'It is only,' resumed the shadow, "'when our thoughts are not fixed upon any particular object, "'that our bodies are subject to all the vagaries of elemental influences. "'Generally, amongst worldly men and frivolous women, "'we only attach ourselves to some article of furniture or of dress.' and they never doubt that we are mere foolish and vague results of the dashing of the waves of the light against the solid forms of which their houses are full. We do not care to tell them the truth, for they would never see it. But let the worldly man or the frivolous woman, and then... At each of the pauses indicated... The mass of shadows throbbed and heaved with emotion, but they soon settled again into comparative stillness. Once more the shadow addressed himself to speak, but suddenly they all looked up, and the king, following their gaze, saw that the aurora had begun to pale. "'The moon is rising,' said the shadow. "'As soon as she looks over the mountains into the valley, we must be gone, for we have plenty to do by the moon. We are powerful in her light. But if your majesty will come here to-morrow night, your majesty may learn a great deal more about us, and judge for himself whether it be fit to accord our petition. For then will be our grand annual assembly, in which we report to our chiefs the things we have attempted, and the good or bad success we have had. "'If you send for me,' returned the king, "'I will come.' Ere the shadow could reply, the tip of the moon's crescent horn peeped up from behind an icy pinnacle, and one slender ray fell on the lake. It shone upon no shadows.' Ere the eye of the king could again seek the earth, after beholding the first brightness of the moon's resurrection, they had vanished, and the surface of the lake glittered cold and blue in the pale moonlight. There the king lay, alone in the midst of the frozen lake, with the moon staring at him. But at length he heard from somewhere a voice that he knew. "'Will you take another cup of tea, dear?' said Mrs. Wrinkleman. And Ralph, coming slowly to himself, found that he was lying in his own bed. "'Yes, I will,' he answered. "'And rather a large piece of toast, if you please, for I have been a long journey since I saw you last.' "'He has not come to himself quite,' said Mrs. Wrinkleman, between her and herself." "'You would be rather surprised,' continued Ralph, "'if I told you where I had been.' "'I dare say I should,' responded his wife. "'Then I will tell you,' rejoined Ralph. But at that moment a great shadow bounced out of the fire with a single huge leap and covered the whole room. Then it settled in one corner— and Ralph saw it shaking its fist at him from the end of a preposterous arm. So he took the hint and held his peace. 
and it was as well for him, for I happen to know something about the shadows too, and I know that if he had told his wife all about it just then, they would not have sent for him the following evening. But as the king, after finishing his tea and toast, lay and looked about him, the shadows, dancing in his room, seemed to him odder and more inexplicable than ever. The whole chamber was full of mystery. So it generally was, but now it was more mysterious than ever. After all that he had seen in the shadow church, his own room and its shadows were yet more wonderful and unintelligible than those. This made it the more likely that he had seen a true vision, for instead of making common things look commonplace, as a false vision would have done, it had made common things disclose the wonderful that was in them. The same applies to all art as well, thought Ralph Rinkelmann. The next afternoon, as the twilight was growing dusky, the king lay, wondering whether or not the shadows would fetch him again. He wanted very much to go, for he had enjoyed the journey exceedingly, and he longed, besides, to hear some of the shadows tell their stories. But the darkness grew deeper and deeper, and the shadows did not come. The cause was that Mrs. Rinkelman sat by the fire in the gloaming, and they could not carry off the king while she was there. Some of them tried to frighten her away by playing the oddest pranks on the walls, the floor, and ceiling, but altogether without effect, the queen only smiled, for she had a good conscience. Suddenly, however, a dreadful scream was heard from the nursery, and Mrs. Rinkelman rushed upstairs to see what was the matter. No sooner had she gone than the two warders of the chimney-corners stepped out into the middle of the room and said in a low voice, "'Is your majesty ready?' "'Have you no hearts?' said the king. "'Or are they as black as your faces? "'Did you not hear the child scream? "'I must know what is the matter with her before I go.' "'Your majesty may keep his mind easy on that point,' replied the warders. "'We had tried everything we could think of "'to get rid of her majesty the queen, but without effect.' So a young madcap shadow, half against the will of the older ones of us, slipped upstairs into the nursery, and has, no doubt, succeeded in appalling the baby, for he is very lithe and long-legged. Now, your majesty. I will have no such tricks played in my nursery, said the king rather angrily. "'You might put the child beside itself.' "'Then there would be twins, your majesty. "'And we rather like twins.' "'None of your miserable jesting. "'You might put the child out of her wits.' "'Impossible, sire, for she has not got into them yet.' "'Go away,' said the king. "'Forgive us, your majesty.' Really, it will do the child good, for that shadow will all her life 
be to her a symbol of what is ugly and bad when she feels in danger of hating or envying any one that shadow will come back to her mind and make her shudder very well said the king i like that let us go the shadows went through the same ceremonies and preparations as before during which the young shadow before mentioned contrived to make such grimaces as kept the baby in terror and the queen in the nursery till all was ready then with a bound that doubled him up against the ceiling and a kick of his legs six feet out behind him he vanished through the nursery door and reached the king's bedchamber just in time to take his place with the last who were melting through the window in the rear of the litter and settling down upon the snow beneath away they went as before a gliding blackness over the white carpet and it was christmas eve when they came in sight of the mountain lake the king saw that it was crowded over its whole surface with a changeful intermingling of shadows they were all talking and listening alternately in pairs trios and groups of every size here and there large companies were absorbed in attention to one elevated above the rest not in a pulpit or on a platform but on the stilts of his own legs elongated for the nonce the aurora right overhead lighted up the lake and the sides of the mountains by sending down from the zenith nearly to the surface of the lake great folded vapours luminous with all the colours of a faint rainbow many however as the words were that passed on all sides not a shadow of a sound reached the ears of the king the shadow-speech could not enter his corporeal organs one of his guides however seeing that the king wanted to hear and could not went through a strange manipulation of his head and ears after which he could hear perfectly though still only the voice to which for the time he directed his attention this however was a great advantage and one which the king longed to carry back with him to the world of men the king now discovered that this was not merely the church of the shadows but their news exchange at the same time for as the shadows have no writing or printing the only way in which they can make each other acquainted with their doings and thinkings is to meet and talk at this word-mart and parliament of shades and as in the world people read their favourite authors and listen to their favourite speakers so here the shadows seek their favourite shadows listen to their adventures and hear generally what they have to say end of section one of the shadows by george macdonald